For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With shoppers buying everything online these days, getting those holiday gifts for family and friends is going to be harder than ever. But no need to worry because our friends at Seattle Shirt Company have got us covered. Jay and the team have an unbelievable selection of NFL and NBA jerseys for everyone on your list. These jerseys are 100% authentic, from current superstars like LeBron James to the all-time legends like Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Walter Payton. Seattle Shirt Company has it all. And right now, for our listeners, we have a special one-time only pre-Black Friday Cyber Monday deal. Everything you buy at seattleshirt.com is 30% off. So head to seattleshirt.com and enter the code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout for 30% off your entire order. Shipping is always free. Seattle Shirt Company, helping you get ready for the holidays a little bit early. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. Conversations with experts in the field of sports, typically basketball. Today's guest, someone who has an amazing resume, a ton of experience, a lot of stories that I'm interested in hearing just a sliver of them because I'm sure he could go on for days. Uh, Someone who I've met in the past, I've been well, I've I've really enjoyed watching his career um, throughout. None other than Coach PJ Carlissimo. Coach, you live in Seattle. You just mentioned off camera that you had just got back from 55 days in the bubble with the NBA. What has that transition been like? Well, I'll tell you, it was, uh, it was interesting. The NBA did an incredible job, Danny. No surprise there. Uh, and the, the players and coaches, I really think um, they didn't get enough credit for what they did. The bubble we were in, the media bubble, was was still pretty strict. I mean, we basically couldn't leave our hotel, but I mean, it was a beautiful hotel. We had to eat our meals there. It was a good working situation. For the players, I mean, the two teams that were there at the end, I think it was day 96 for Miami and day 95 for the Lakers. And for those guys to be there for most of that time to be away from their families and really to have incredible restrictions, they really weren't allowed to go anywhere, uh, was amazing. And the, the level of basketball was great. Uh, I don't think it would have happened. A lot of people, when it started, were very skeptical, saying this isn't going to work. Uh, you know, it's just asking too much. But they uh, they bought in. They did a great job, and and they got through it. It was a lot later. It was kind of funny having uh, basketball, the NBA Finals in October. But uh, the quality of play was good, and the way it was set up was good. I think we're going to see some colleges down there also. They're talking about moving a lot of the tournaments that, you know, 
different years are in the Bahamas or Hawaii or all over the United States. And now they're talking about maybe having to move them there to, to play in a bubble. So, you know, we're all kind of looking the same way. I'm wondering what's going to happen on the high school front uh, with, with my kids here in Seattle. But uh, also you and I spend, a, you know, a lot of our winters uh, enjoying commentating on college basketball. I, I hope that's going to happen again. I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely up in the air. It looks like it's trending in the right direction. Games are supposed to start November 25th. You have had, having spent 55 days in the bubble, I, I'm, you mentioned you were impressed with the NBA. They're always at the forefront of different things, whether it's technology, whether it's giving their players a platform to speak their mind, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. I've always been impressed with the NBA's openness to allow that. You started your career – as a college coach and not a lot of coaches have a lot of success going from college to the NBA. And we'll touch on that in a second, but your first big break at the college level came in the big East during maybe the prime years of the big East at Seton hall. You got them to a final four. What are some of uh, the memories, the battles, the rivalries that you really remember in that big East? Well, unfortunately, a lot of it was kind of brought back to us this year when uh, when John Thompson passed away, and it was actually the time when I was down in the bubble. But um, we've lost two of the four guys. To be truthful, the four people, five people, really. Dave Gavitt was the commissioner. I mean, it was his idea. He put it together. He was just a brilliant, brilliant uh, man, but also a, a college coach and administrator. And as the commissioner of the Big East, he kind of aligned the Big East with ESPN when it started. Both of them were very new. It was 1979, uh, the Big East was formed. There was really no conferences. A lot of people don't realize there was no such thing as conferences on the East Coast. Everybody was kind of an independent and they played against each other. And at the end of the year, they'd pick the better teams for the tournament. And all of a sudden, the Ivy League always existed. Then the Atlantic 10, in those days it was called the Eastern 8, was the first league that started, and the Big East was the second, and then it, it kind of steamrolled, and now the East is pretty much similar to the rest of the country. But uh, the four people, along with Dave Gavitt, that made it happen, Roly Massimino, who passed last year, John Thompson at Georgetown, and the other two are still going strong. Jim Beheim's still actively coaching at Syracuse, and Lou Carnesecca still involved with the basketball program at St. John's. And it was really those four that – that made everything happen. And they were just, it was a perfect time. Uh, it's funny looking back now, Danny, because people don't remember. In those days, there was very few games on television. And if you, if you watch TV, if you wanted to see games, uh, the Big East, that they created Big Monday. They played basically four or five nights a week. And a lot of the other leagues resented it because their kids would go home, even out in the West Coast, guys would go home after school and they'd watch the Big East games on TV now. Of course, every game is on and people forget the way it was like, but that really helped uh, the Big East get off to a great start. The, the beginnings of, of ESPN, they started together. ESPN needed programming, the Big East needed exposure, and it really worked out well. But it, it wouldn't have mattered if you didn't have a Patrick Ewing at Georgetown or a Chris Mullen uh, at St. John's, Pearl Washington, all the great players that uh, Jim had at uh, Syracuse and Eddie Pinckney and the guys that went on to win national championships uh, at, at national championship at Villanova. So it was a great time to be in the league. It was a tough time. We, we had four straight or five straight losing seasons before we even got our head above water. But the good thing was the league was so good 
it kind of brought everybody along and maybe somebody wasn't good enough or wasn't recruited by a, a Syracuse or a St. John's and he could come to Seton Hall and get a chance to play. And so eventually we started getting players like that ourselves and uh, then the winning took care of itself. I had Steve Lapis on this ISO podcast the other day and, and we had talked about their run uh, when he was an assistant under Roley Massimino to beat Georgetown in the final four. And what I didn't recognize or, or remember about that year, because I was still young at the time, was three of the four teams that year in the Final Four were Big East teams, and then a fourth lost in the Elite Eight. Do you see that ever happening again in college basketball? Well, I, I would say no, except you, you referenced before our run to the, to the championship game in 1989. In 89, we got to the Final Four right here in Seattle in the old kingdom. And you know how it works. The, the Elite Eight is Saturday, Sunday. We happened to win. We were in the West. We, we had been shipped West, which we always were at Senior. We actually enjoyed it, to be honest with you. But um, we were shipped West, and we won in Denver on a Saturday. And Michigan also won uh, uh, on a Saturday. I forget what, what region they were in, but the two of us won. That night, I talked to two other Big East coaches, and it's funny. Uh, again, you said you were, you were a little older then, but – Syracuse played Illinois and got beat on the last play of the game on Sunday to go to the Final Four. And we were the one that no one was expected to, to you know, when we went to bed Saturday night in Denver, I thought it was going to happen again, Danny, four years later, because Georgetown was playing Duke in the Meadowlands, and D Georgetown was a heavy favorite, and Syracuse was playing Illinois, and it was basically a toss-up game. And I thought, you know, really good chance. Here comes Syracuse, here comes Georgetown we're going to have three teams in the final four again. And as it went down, uh, Syracuse got beat on a really a missed free throw rebound and stick back by Illinois, a really good Illinois team with Kendall Gill and uh, Nick Anderson, all those guys. And Georgetown got upset in the Meadowlands by Duke. So it ended up the final four being Duke, Illinois, ourselves, and Michigan. You had two big 10 teams, but Saturday night when we went to bed, I thought we were going to have three Big East teams in the finals again. Uh, I don't think it can happen. As good, you know, year to year, as good as the ACC is and as good as the Big East sometimes is or the, the, the Big Ten, I mean, name whatever conference you want. Uh, to get three out of four is probably not going to happen again. It was amazing in Lexington that year when uh, Villanova beat them. And, and the reason you can get that kind of upset as you well know from, from, you know, playing in the WCC, teams know each other very, very well. It's hard to beat a team three times. And that Villanova team was an excellent team. Did they play close to a perfect game? Yeah, they did. But, again, they knew Georgetown, and they had played them, you know, two other times. One of them was really close, if not all three. So it wasn't quite the upset that a lot of people made it out to be. Yeah, that is uh, spot on with how Coach Lapis described it as well, having played them tight twice in the year, and they went in with a lot of confidence. And people said they pitched a perfect game, essentially. And he said, yeah, they did play really well, but because they played Georgetown tough earlier in the season, they had a lot of confidence going in. So after the success at Seton Hall, getting them to a final a championship game, you did what a lot of college coaches weren't doing at the time. You went to the NBA as a head coach, and you had a lot of uh, you had a lot of success right off the bat. You went to a good organization with the Blazers. Unfortunately, a difficult scenario for you. They traded Clyde Drexler, one of my favorite players growing up, exactly. about halfway through your first season. What was the transition like? Because people don't understand it's two different games. 
Well, it, it, it is very different. What was different for me, Dan, that a lot of other people never got the opportunity. People always, you know, use as example various coaches that, that jumped and they say, well, these guys didn't have success. What happens to most college coaches that have come to the NBA, they end up with an expansion team and they end up with a bad team, frankly. And as you well know, um, the NBA, as all basketball, but particularly the NBA, is all about players and your roster. And I inherited a really good team from Rick Adelman. And we, we went to the play. I was there three years. I love Portland. And all three years we were there, we got to the playoffs. I think the last year we won 49. Kind of got a bad deal at the end because we, we had it going. Uh, had won 49, got beaten in the playoffs by the Lakers with Kobe and Shaq. And uh, I thought we were really ready to make, you know, make even better inroads. But, it, you know, it wasn't to be. But that was the difference. I, you mentioned Clyde. I, and not only did I hear Clyde, I had uh, – Buck Williams, Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey, like four of the great players that Rick Adelman had on all his teams. Rick got a bad deal. They should have never changed Rick Adelman. He was doing great. They had been to the finals twice, but they'd gotten beat in the first round of the playoffs a couple times. And you know how it is in the NBA. They said, well, let's make a change. The difference was, A, I inherited a good team, and B, at least I was smart enough to surround myself with good coaches. Is, um, Dick Harder was one of my assistant coaches who had been with Pat Riley uh, with, with the Knicks when, when they had had their great runs. Rick Carlisle was another coach, and Johnny Davis was my third coach. So I had three guys who were veteran NBA coaches, two of whom had played in the NBA, and they didn't let me uh, mess up like I probably would have done on my own. And uh, So I just think, uh, unlike a lot of guys who got the opportunity to coach in the NBA, I was really lucky. I got a really veteran team, team that was used to winning and a team that was competitive. A lot of guys have come in, uh, Leonard Hamilton, I think he had Washington, even Rick Pitino, the first, or excuse me, Rick did well uh, with the Knicks, didn't do as well with Boston. Uh, Lonnie Kruger, I think was in Atlanta. Tark was in uh, San Antonio before San Antonio was any good. Most of them came in two or three years in, Bad teams and they lost, which they would have lost with anybody. Phil Jackson and Red Arbach couldn't have coached some of those teams. But, uh, you know, the, the party line was always, well, a college coach, he doesn't know what he was doing. I was lucky. You mentioned CD. I, I knew Clyde very well because in 92, uh, I had been an assistant with Chuck Daly on the Dream Team. So I knew a bunch of the coaches. I had really good relationships with a lot of players in the league, either from the Big East or from Nike, because I'd been with Nike for so many years. So it just my transition was a little different than most. It wasn't that I was a better coach. It was I got a better team, and I was smart enough to surround myself with – I mean, you know what Rick Carlisle's got on to do, Johnny Davis and, and Dick Carter. So I was just lucky where I was, where I got to coach, and the players I had. You mentioned the dream team and, and coaching alongside uh, Chuck Daly and being on that staff. I, I was fascinated by the last dance. That was – the, the, the time of my life where I was 13, 14 years old, I, I, abs I loved basketball before, it, but I fell in love with basketball even more. What was that experience like being around that team? It was literally what you would think, Danny. It'd be a, a once in a lifetime. It was the best two months of my life. There was actually four segments to it. We, we met and had our training camp, if you want to call it that, in La Jolla at UCSD, which is uh, interesting. It's where my wife went to college. But we were at UCSD, and the team was already picked. We had, we had our 12 guys, and they brought in a college all-star team for us to scrimmage against. And it was Bobby Hurley, uh, 
Penny Hardaway, Chris Webber, Grant Hill. I mean, all players that went on, most of them went on to be NBA All-Stars or Hall of Famers. Uh, Roy Williams and George Raveling uh, coached that team. So when we had our practices and we scrimmaged every day, that's who we played against. And people forget because in 88, we didn't win the gold medal. The qualifying was different. In the old days, if you won the gold medal, you were automatically in the following Olympics. Well, nowadays, it's not like that. But in, eight, in 92, it was. We didn't win the gold medal in 88. We got beat in Seoul. We were upset in Korea. Uh, Soviet Union won the, won the gold medal. So we had to qualify in a, a, an event called the Tournament of the Americas, which was held in Portland. So we went from San Diego, a week of practice down there against the college guys. Then we played in Portland, uh, Tournament of the Americas, and we dominated that. Obviously, we won and we qualified for the Olympics. But when we got to Portland, I think we had like seven games in nine days. So we never practiced. We had shoot rounds and we had, you know, our games and that was it. Then we took about a week off and we flew over to Monte Carlo, believe it or not. We trained in Monte Carlo for a week before we went to Barcelona to get over, get used to Europe and to play against some uh, other teams from, uh, from Europe to get us ready. That was the first time, Dan, that we had scrimmaged against each other because in San Diego, we had the college guys to go against. In Portland, we never did anything but games and shoot-arounds. So we get to Monte Carlo, and we're getting ready for Barcelona the following week, and it's the first time we only have 12 players. So when we scrimmage now, it's five-on-five. Five. It's those guys playing against each other, and that was the best basketball of the whole summer because the games in Portland were never competitive. Even the games in Barcelona, as good as some of those teams were, they couldn't compete with our players. So, I mean – the practices we had in Monte Carlo, the week of practice in Monte Carlo was actually the best basketball of the entire summer. And, you know, one of your good buddies, Spokane native, and of course, the, in my opinion, the greatest point guard ever in the NBA, John Stockton was one of the 12 guys on that team. And Stock was dinged up, like he couldn't practice every day. Both he and Larry Bird really had pretty tough injuries, but, you know, they, they, they of course, gutted it out and they wanted to play and uh, got a chance to participate. But there were some days in Monte Carlo where we only had 10 healthy bodies. So it was five on five and, and that was it. And it was amazing to watch. I mean, when you got a team where John Stockton or Magic Johnson's the point guard, and they had Clyde Drexler, you mentioned, and Magic, uh, Chris Mullen are the, are the wings, Scottie Pippen, and uh, i trying to think who the other three, the other wing was. I'm forgetting the wing. I'll think of it in a second. And then you had uh, the big guys were Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, uh, Patrick Ewing, uh, David Robinson. I mean, it didn't matter who it was. The, the matchups were incredible. So uh, Larry Bird was the other wing, and I'm forgetting. How's that for forgetting a three-man? Um, but it, it was, you know, it was just special. And getting to know those guys, A, was a lot of fun. But watching the impact they had in, in the United States, it was big, obviously, in San Diego and Portland. When we got to Monte Carlo and when we were in Barcelona, the coverage, the world media, the coverage they had, that was the first time anybody had ever seen anything like that. Uh, a basketball team get the kind of coverage that those guys got and the attention. It was, I mean, when we traveled anywhere, I mean, in Barcelona, it was like 10 motorcycles, four police cars. There were guys with the long rifles and stuff. Every time we went under an underpass, you'd see the guards up there. The security was amazing because they were a little worried uh, that that Olympics, that there might be a, you know, terrorist attack or something like that. And they felt that our team 
was the highest visibility team there. So the security that our guys had to put up with was incredible. I still remember Stock and Nada being there with the kids were all so small then. I mean, later on, I see David and Houston and those guys get older. And, you know, guys, I know you know very well, but I remember them in 92 walking around the Rambles in, in, in Barcelona with John and Nada. It was really amazing. Yeah, I actually asked John the question the other day because I know he was interviewed for, for The Last Dance. I saw him at the gym and we were just talking. And I asked him if he watched it. And, you know, in typical John kind of uh, commentary, he's <laughs> like, I've already been through that. I've seen it. I didn't want to see it through that lens. But for me, it was fascinating because I'm a ba- I love reading and watching basketball documentaries. And you had a front row seat for, for a lot of Michael Jordan's career. Um, coaching him on the dream team, coaching against him in the NBA. Did you watch it as a fan or did you watch it kind of as a, as a opposing coach? I uh, watched it as a fan, more as a fan, because there were, there were some interesting things that, you know, you, you wouldn't know. I, Michael's a perfect example because coaching against Michael first in college, then because of the relationship with Nike, I'd been with Nike for so long. And Michael obviously was the Nike endorser of all time. We, we'd go on a college coaches trip every summer. Fewey would always be there. Uh, and I mean, even later on, Danny Monson, a lot of guys that were coaches at, uh, at Gonzaga before they went, that went out on their own. But I knew Michael very, very well. Now, that didn't make any difference when you, when you coached against him. But, I, you know, I thought golf with Michael a ton, had a lot of fun with him. But again, watching that and getting behind the scenes in Chicago and watching the things that, at his, as they evolve, even the, you know, the part about the, the documentary about the, uh, the dream team. Yeah, it was fascinating. And I tell you what, I enjoyed it almost as much as anything, Dan, was watching it with my sons because they've met Michael. They knew Michael when they were little, but they really didn't know Michael as a basketball player. And their favorite part was watching the clips of the games, like seeing him playing and like really watching because they'd heard so much about him. You know, there's pictures in the house, there's autographs and stuff. And, you know, they said, yeah, we heard he was this good, but they never got a chance to see him play. So we at literally every Sunday, we couldn't wait for the, for the, for the next segment to, to watch that. My wife and I and the two kids, uh, we enjoyed it. And uh, I'm going to get on stock the next time I see him. He's got he's to gotta watch all 10 of those for sure. Although I, I, he probably saw enough of Michael uh, from, from the uh, opposite bench to, to, to handle him for the rest of his life. Yeah, I'm sure he has. But you, as mentioned, you had a front row seat during that Olympics, that dream team. So you've seen the influence that the U.S. in the basketball approach had on the rest of the world. Now, from my perspective, I see the European or the international influence starting to come back to no question. the U.S. How, how do you view both of those kind of thoughts? Well, it's been, it's been fantastic. I was lucky because I, inv- I got involved with USA Basketball. I did a lot of coaching going way back to the, to the 70s. I coached in Puerto Rico. I coached a bunch of summers uh, in France and Italy and Yugoslavia. And I always enjoyed it. It was a big part of our success at Seton Hall. We always, you know, we never got good until we were able to keep the New York and the New Jersey guys at home because that was such a tough recruiting area. Everybody wanted to recruit those guys. When we finally got those guys to stay home, the Mark Bryants and Daryl Walkers, Gerald Green, John Morton, the good, good local players, that turned us around. We always had international players because I had coached so much in Europe and around the world and in Puerto Rico. I, I had two players before Seton Hall, who started for me for four years at Wagner College. And then Ramon Ramos uh, was a great player for us at Seton Hall for four years. And then he had that 
horrible accident when he was a rookie with the Trailblazers. So international basketball was something that I was a, a big part of. And to see that evolve, and you mentioned 92 was really the breaking point because from that point on, so many coaches had gone over there and done clinics and things like that. But I think it opened doors for players to start coming over here. And international basketball just kept getting better and better. And it finally got to the point where people were looking like it used to be. It was almost a criticism. We'd get a European big guy and they'd say, well, he just wants to play on the, on the outside. Uh, you know, he doesn't want to play inside. He wants to go out and shoot jump shots. And it, it, it's, it, it's unbelievable um, what, what happened there. Uh, it, it's so different that uh, the basketball, we learned from them. You know, now they talk about they, you want guys who can shoot the ball on the perimeter. And it used to be, well, that was a criticism of, of, of people out there. So uh, I really enjoyed it uh, watching the – for a change, it was us learning from – Europe, not Europe in general, but the rest of the world, but especially Europe. And you see the players now, Dan, one of the things that could never happen uh, back in 92, those players were all intimidated by the U.S. team, and they should have been. That team was so unbelievable. But it got to the point in each succeeding Olympics where you had guys who played in the NBA and were successful, and kind of that stigma, if you will, or that awe they had of our players that was always there with the – with with the uh, dream team that got away more and more each year. Now it's to the point where I'm telling you what, if the NBA season goes as late as they're talking about it possibly going, uh, it's going to be really difficult for Greg Popovich to, to to have a really you know representative team. It's not going to be easy to win that gold medal in uh, in in Tokyo. Now the, the good news is some of the other countries have the same problem we have. Some of their best players fortunately are playing in the NBA. So they may miss some of these competitions too, but the international game has gotten so much closer to the U the rules used to be so different right now. We take, we take some rules for them. Referees don't handle the ball as much. Some of the things they do when you think back and, and obviously way before you were even born in the seventies, the rules were so different. The game was so different the way it was played. Uh, now it's gotten closer and closer each year. And frankly, we're taking the better rules they have. We're learning from their players. You know, the, the game has opened up more. Uh, the three-point shooting is the obvious thing. But, I mean, three-point shooting was always a huge part of the international game when our, our people, you know, didn't even, didn't even consider it. It was something that they didn't even talk about. Now, with the open floor, with bigs who shoot on the perimeter, uh, with, with basketball playing the way it is right now, I'll tell you what, you should come out of retirement, Danny. You would love the way they're playing in the NBA right now. It's amazing. I mean, but people don't realize how much it's changed, how different the game is now from what it was not that long ago. No, you're exactly right. I mean, I look at my early part of my NBA career till now, the emphasis on shooting the three-point shot in spacing the floor, and I don't want to say less of an emphasis on defense, but the, the rules are so much – Legislate. Better. You can't play defense now. They don't want you to be able to guard. You can't, you can't guard these guys to begin with. Now if you touch them, if you, you blow on them, it's a foul. So it's – no, it's, it's totally different. Um, it's really, really challenging to be a good defensive team now because the rules are all in favor – you know – what the NBA wants and, frankly, what, what the world wants is more points. They want it to be more entertaining. And it's you got old fogies like me who used to try and coach the other way. It, it's hard. Uh, it's difficult to be a big guy. It's difficult to be a coach that, you know, wants to slow things down and wants to control the game with defense. 
that that's not happening anymore. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, to, to make the game the best, you've got to balance the ability to guard people with the exciting plays that bring the fans back over yeah. and over again. Coach, I know you're busy, so I got one last question for you before I let you go. You mentioned spending 55 days or so in the bubble and eating at the same restaurants and being at the same hotel. Every over night. And over. <laughs> Anybody in the broadcasting or coaching world knows that you – regardless of city that you're in working at that time have a italian restaurant on speed <laughs> dial ready to go what was the first restaurant that you went to when you got back to seattle i got it uh it was, it's called how to cook a wolf uh it's an believe it or not it's an italian restaurant it's right here on queen anne where i live and and i couldn't wait there's what really killed me was there's a great Italian restaurant in Orlando, but you probably were there when you played the Magic. It's called Christini's, and unfortunately, it was outside the bubble, and we couldn't go there. We could, we could order in, and they could deliver, but it was like 25 minutes away. It wasn't the same, and I couldn't wait for the last night to go to Christini's, but when we got back here, got, got to Seattle, How to Cook a Wolf was the first place I was going to go to, and Asagio was one of the second ones downtown, so uh, I was counting every one of those uh, two months I was down there. I was waiting for it to, to be back. The food was good at our hotel, but not not for two months straight every night. Well, I'm gonna have to keep uh, that restaurant name in my memory for the next. How to cook a wolf? You'll love it. Sounds good. Well, Coach, I appreciate the time. Thanks for joining the ISO and SB Live Sports. Wish you nothing but the best as you get ready for another upcoming season of broadcasting and whatever basketball puts you into. All right, Dan, thank you. Say hello to Fuey. Good luck for the Zags. Absolutely. Thanks again. All right. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.